Acts chapter 11 in your Bible. As soon as you find it, go to 26, Acts 11, Acts 26. As soon as you find that, go to Isaiah 51. As soon as you find that, go to Psalm 16. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Acts chapter 11, and when you find it, stand to your feet with me. These are brief verses that we're going to read several of here. Acts 11 and 26. I'm going to go to the end of the verse because that's the part of it that I really want you to see. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. The disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Now go over to chapter 26. There's a king there, Agrippa is his name. He's a pagan king and an unbeliever in Christ. And Agrippa here in verse number 28 of chapter 26 said to the apostle Paul, almost you persuade me to be a Christian. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. By the time that we get to chapter 26, the whole population was beginning to think in terms of this group of Christians, this movement. And the king said to Paul, you've almost persuaded me to be a Christian. I'm going to go in my mind. I'm not asking you to turn there. If you go to First Peter, it says, if any man suffer as a Christian. So those are the three times in the New Testament the word Christian is used. The first were called Christians at Antioch. Almost you persuade me to be a Christian. If you suffer as a Christian, you do thus and so. Now, in chapter 28 of Acts, turn there with me too, and the word Christian is not used, but in Acts 28 and 22, we desire to hear of you what you think, for as concerning this sect referring to Christians, Christians were known as a sect, as a specific group, a particular religious group, if you will. As concerning this sect of Christians, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. And you may be seated. So the followers of Jesus Christ were first called Christians. Christian means little Christ. They were called little Christs because they reflected the personality and the character of Jesus Christ so much. And King Agrippa must have been very, very impressed with this group of people, this new sect, as it says in chapter 28, because he said, you almost persuade me, Paul, to be one of that sect, a a Christian. Now, through the years, different groups have used different names to distinguish themselves in the total number of Christians in the world. We are Christians first. Secondly, we are Baptist. We call ourselves Baptist. We derived our name from a man who Jesus referred to as a man who there has never been a person born among women greater than he. Jesus gave him the absolute highest compliment that a person can be given. There's never been a man born among women greater 
than John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was, he got his name from the fact that he immersed people. The word baptize or Baptist comes from a Greek term, baptizo, which was transliterated. It wasn't even translated. It just a different form came about in English. And the word baptizo meant always to immerse, to submerge under the water. And so John was John the immerser. He was John the submerger. And his converts came as he preached there across Judea. And as they would come, John would immerse them. He called them to repentance and pointed them to Jesus Christ. And then he submerged them under the water. We take our name from him. There's an old joke that Baptist people have told through the years. With some of you, you've heard it many times. Others may perhaps not. And the question is, what would you be if you weren't a Baptist? And the answer is, I'd be ashamed. That's a strong Baptist who can say that, isn't it? And uh, I'm proud, though, today to be a Baptist. I don't apologize. In fact, I'm honored. If you called me Bill the Baptist, I'd say amen. I'm proud of that name. I would not duck that one at all. Somebody said, I'm Baptist born and Baptist bred, and when I die, I'll be Baptist dead. Amen? That's a person who's committed to what they believe, and there's a reason why we believe it. So my message today is entitled, What's in a Name? What's in a Name? I mean by that, what's in the name of our particular religious belief? What's in the name of Baptist? There's a lot of Baptists in South Carolina. There are more Baptists in South Carolina, I believe, than there is population. And yet, all of them don't know what Baptist means. And that's why I recommended that you get that little book, The Trail of Blood, The History of the Baptist People. And I don't think people understand that name at all today. In fact, many run from it. To me, it's one of the saddest, saddest trends that churches across America, thinking that they're going to attract people because the word Baptist carries a lot of baggage with it. It does carry a lot of baggage. So does Catholic, and so does Presbyterian, and so does Pentecostal. Every one of us in our particular groups we have a bunch of scoundrels and bootleggers, and I don't know what else we have, horse thieves and former days, car thieves now, I guess. We have bad apples and hypocrites and scoundrels that call themselves Baptist and other names as well. All the denominations are well represented, unfortunately. And so South Carolina is full of Baptists, but do we know what that word represents? And it distresses me. I see churches that take the name Baptist off and they name it some generic name. By generic, I mean you wouldn't know what the church believed or what it stood for. I was thinking about all these names. The fellowship. What kind of fellowship is it? The well. The, uh, uh, I saw a church, it was named Alive. What's Alive? What do you mean by Alive? Does that mean everybody else is dead? 
You know, I think, where do they get these names? And why do we run from our name? Yeah, we got some scoundrels who call themselves Baptists. But all they're doing is reflecting the nature of man, that we're all sinners. And why would we run from the wonderful, wonderful heritage and name that is reflected in the word Baptist, a glorious heritage of Baptist. And in the book of Isaiah, chapter 51 and verse number 1, there's a wonderful, wonderful little phrase there. Look at it on your screen. Look to the rock from whence you are hewn. And the idea, the images of a great outcropping of rock, somebody takes a chisel and hits it and A piece of the rock comes off its hewn from the rock. And to the hole in the pit from which you were digged. And so, what was the pit from which we were digged? Early Christianity. And what is the rock from which we were hewn or chipped from? It was the rock of Jesus Christ Himself. What a wonderful, wonderful description of who we are and what we are. And so, I want you to think with me about the glorious heritage and history of Baptists. Christianity enjoyed its most rapid time of growth in the days of the apostles, in the days immediately after the Lord Jesus Christ ascended back to heaven. Christianity just exploded. And some of those churches in those days grew to tremendous size. The church, we believe, in Jerusalem according to very reliable tradition, grew to about 50,000 active people coming, uh, active membership, and that was out of a city of only about 200,000 people. In other words, 25% or more of the total population was coming there to that central church in the city of Jerusalem, the first church that was ever founded. But in time, the church in Rome became, became even larger. And it had many pastors, it had many bishops, it had a tremendous staff, as we would refer to it today. And in time, and we're talking over periods of 50s and hundreds of years, over time, that church began to be so dominant that it began to assume authority over the smaller churches. And it began to use its influence to, to control the other churches. And so, a, a denomination was formed. And their first great error, though, it doesn't, didn't take them long to drift away from the New Testament. The first error was the unscriptural practice of baptismal regeneration. Somebody was reading the Bible, and they got the idea, the Bible has a lot to say about baptism. There's a lot of references about baptism. So, Baptism, if it's that important to be mentioned over and over in the Bible, it must have something to do with salvation. And so they began to teach that baptism was essential to salvation. Now, let me say, we categorically deny that. We renounce that. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, by grace are you saved through faith, not through baptism. Your baptism has zero to do with your salvation. Amen? But people began to misinterpret the Scripture, and they began to to go the direction. You've got to be baptized to be saved. We call that doctrine baptismal regeneration. 
And then another era came because era begets era. Once you get one era, you're going to have more era coming probably. And the second era was, well, if baptism is essential to salvation, we better hurry up and do it as quickly as possible. What if one of those little babies were to die? And if we hadn't baptized them, they would perish. So we must hurry and baptize them as soon as possible. And the evolution of the idea then became that we've got to baptize infants. And then another era, and we're talking about over time, two or three hundred years before all of this was in place. Sprinkling the babies, hard to baptize a baby, to immerse a baby. You know, you put a baby under the water, you've got other problems then. So the pastor or priest or whomever, they just take the baby and sprinkle a little water on its head. And sprinkling replaced submersion, immersion, baptism. Baptizo. And now we just sprinkle a little water on the baby's head. And the error there is we no longer picture the gospel with our baptism. Now look up here. Let me tell you, if you don't know, don't miss this. You look up there behind me, the most dominant figure in this building is that big cross standing there. And right below it, there's a pool with 1,200 gallons of water in it. And when a new convert, a new Christian comes for baptism. I greet them in that pool. We're under the cross. That's very, very important. That's symbolic. It's meaningful because they're coming under the cross for their baptism. They're coming to the cross. We could put a pretty picture up there, a beautiful picture of the Jordan River or something, and that would be okay. But the point is, we wanted here to everybody, every time we baptize a person, we want them to see that they are coming to the cross. It's the cross before the creek. It is the Lord's cross before we, we it is the blood before the baptism, as somebody said. We always want that to ring out very, very prominently. And so this new Christian comes and stands under the cross. And the Bible says, Christ died for our sins, point one of the gospel. I then immerse that person down in that water. A water burial is what that represents because Christ died for our sins. He was buried, the Bible says. I bury that convert, that new Christian, in the water. And then as Christ was buried, so he was resurrected, I bring them back up out of the water, and that pictures the resurrection. And so when you're baptized correctly and scripturally, you picture the very gospel of Jesus Christ that you're counting on for your salvation. Christ died for your sins. He was buried. He was resurrected to live in, for us to live in newness of life. And so baptism is the gospel in picture form. And so this is a great era when you tell people, look, You've got to be baptized to be saved. It's a horrible, it's a heresy. And then to say to them, look, you've got to baptize a baby. The baby didn't know what I was doing here today. What a wonderful day to be able to preach this. The babies are, are not of the age of competency. They're not of the age of accountability. They're just here. They're just little fellas. And so that baby then hears me uh, or that, that parent, we dedicate that baby, but that baby doesn't yet know the gospel. And so 
the baby now, it grows older and comes to know Christ as their Savior and their Lord. And we baptize that child as soon as they're of the age to where they can understand what this is about. And the error is, why would we baptize people who haven't believed? Why would we baptize people who are basically unconscious to what we're trying to do? It, it can mean nothing to, it means nothing to the child. And so those errors crept into the churches. And there were various groups, though, who said, we're not going to accept that. We're not going to believe that. We're not going to follow that line of thinking. And they were unwilling to be a part of that Roman system. And these people went out and they founded churches, and the churches were modeled after the New Testament pattern, the way the churches started out in their most primitive times. And these congregants met on Sunday. They assembled together as we are doing here right now. They sang praises to the Lord Jesus Christ as the New Testament commands us to do. They prayed together and they opened the Word of God and studied it and somebody preached from the Scriptures. They discipled their members after their salvation. They baptized them after their salvation. Their mission as they saw it was to carry out the Great Commission why is the Great Commission such a big thing with us? Listen to me. It's the only thing that Jesus repeated five times. Five times Jesus said, we're to go into all the world, preach the gospel, and then do what? Baptize, submerge, immerse those converts, and then train and teach them everything that we could about the Christian faith and help them mature and live their lives out for Him. And through history, those groups became known by different names. And that's why you have different names for different groups today under the Christian umbrella. And they were called by names in those early days like Montanist, after a man named Montana, a leader. Novationist, Donatist. Albigensians represented a, a certain uh, place in Europe there. Waldensians from uh, Germany, I think it is, in Switzerland. Paulicans, after the Apostle Paul. Somebody took that name. They took the name of their founders, or they took the name of one of the uh, early church leaders, or they took the name of their locale, a regional name, a geographical name. The largest group who refused to allow their infants to be baptized were called Anabaptist. Anabaptist. Anabaptist didn't mean they were against baptism. In fact, they were the people most strongly practicing baptism. Anabaptist meant we're against baptism of people who do not yet know Christ as their Savior. We oppose infant baptism. We oppose baptism of people who've not yet come to Christ no matter what their age may be. And so the Anabaptists dominated all those groups. And yes, if you go back in history, some critic will say, well, some of them had some false doctrine. Yes, they did. Some of them had some things that we would not agree with them on theologically, but for the most part, they held to New Testament principles. Now, go back in your mind and in your Bible is Isaiah 51.1. And 
That's what that verse is talking about. Look to the rock from whence we were hewn. I've just described the rock, that early Anabaptist history. Look to the rock from whence you were hewn and the pit from which you were digged, your source, where you came from, your heritage. And in Psalm 16 and 6, turn there with me. I want you to look at a verse of Scripture that I would like for you to have it underlined and marked in your Bible. And in Psalm number 16 and verse 6, every one of us here, I think, could say this. The lines have fallen unto me in pleasant places. God has been good to me. And then last, yea, I have a goodly heritage. I have a goodly, I have a glorious heritage as a Baptist. I have a wonderful heritage that God has blessed me with. Now, what is it then that distinguished these New Testament Baptist churches? And let me, I'm going to read to you a list of 12 things. And it is so important to me that you get this, that I had it put in your program today. So open up your church program there, your church bulletin, if you will, and look over there somewhere in it at the bottom of the page. It has the 12 marks or the distinguishing marks of a New Testament church. And so if you have to ever leave here, God forbid, and go somewhere else and find you a new church home, here's the way you evaluate a new church. Because these are the 12 marks of the, the rock from which we were hidden, the pit from which we were digged. These are the marks you ought to look for to find a scriptural New Testament church. And what are they? Number one, Jesus Christ is the head and founder of our church. Matthew 16, 18, he said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So Jesus is our leader. Jesus is the head of our church. I'm not the head. There's not a pope somewhere. There's not a bishop somewhere. Jesus Christ is the head. You say, well, man, that is so ethereal. That's so, what does that mean? Jesus Christ is the head? How could he be the head? Well, that leads me to number two, to the Bible. The Bible is our final authority. Our Bible to us is truth in all matters. And through it, we hear the voice of Jesus Christ. Christ leads his church through his word. And that's why the Word of God is so very important. Without the Word, we wouldn't even know about Jesus. Without the Bible, we wouldn't know about salvation by grace. Without the Bible, we wouldn't know about the cross. We wouldn't know about the resurrection. We'd know about nothing about the Christian faith. So Jesus Christ, lead, as the head and leader of our church, leads us through His Word. We assiduously study the Word. We, we dissect every word of it because... It teaches us where to go and how to, how to function as a church. And the name of it, thirdly, is church. It comes from the Greek word ekklesia, which means an assembly of people who have been called out for a specific business. We've been saved. We've been baptized. Collectively, we're the bride of Christ. All the saved people in all the churches, wherever they may be, are the bride of Christ. But the local church is, is, is special 
because it's the assembly of a group of people getting together. The problem with this invisible universal church teaching is it, 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 it goes against the very definition of what the word church means. Church is an assembly. The universal church never assembled. It won't assemble until the day that the Lord Jesus Christ comes back and calls out his bride, all of the saved people of all the ages. Then we'll have an assembled church. But we don't have one right now. So we have local churches right now. That must be our emphasis. Number four is its government. The government of a Baptist church is congregational, meaning that all believers are equal. We're priests under the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Membership requirements, according to the New Testament, in every case, the people who were members of the churches in the New Testament, first they were saved, then they were baptized. Because you profess faith in Christ, you're not a member of our church. You become a member upon your baptism, and you go to the New Testament, you'll see that over and over. That's the way you join the church. You join it through going through that baptismal pool in which you now become truly a baptized one. And then if you will notice, it's officers here, our pastors, Sometimes in the New Testament, elders and bishops are used, but it's all the same office. It's all the same office. So I'm the pastor of this church. I'm the bishop. <laughs> and you don't have any trouble anymore believing I'm the elder. But I'm the, I'm the bishop. Now, don't start calling me the bishop. Just call me what you've always done. But what I'm illustrating is that the pastor and the bishop and the elder, same office. It's just different roles, different functions for them. And its mission is what? The Great Commission. And its financial plan is tithes and offerings. People willingly and voluntarily support their church. There's no coercion for you to give. You give because you want to give. You give because you have a heart for the Lord's work. It's weapons. This is important. The Bible says our weapons are spiritual. They're not carnal. And what do we mean by that? What are the spiritual weapons we have? Well, first, we have the Bible, the Word of God. That's the sword that cuts and that God uses to touch people's hearts and to instruct their minds. We have the Word of God. Second weapon we have is prayer. The weapon of prayer, the Bible even refers to that. And then we have the Holy Spirit who works in the lives of people as they hear the gospel and they hear the truth. And so these spiritual weapons, we're not primarily political. We're not primarily economic. We're not primarily even benevolent and humanitarian. We are a spiritual entity. The church is unique in all the world in that. And we have a practice among Baptists especially. We emphasize this, and that's absolute religious liberty for all. Absolute religious freedom and liberty for all. Freedom of conscience, we call it. Freedom of conscience. Listen, I don't want to just jump on anybody who, is, uh, who you were sprinkled as a child, but that's one of the reasons Baptists don't, we don't baptize infants is we don't want to coerce their will. The child didn't will to be baptized. 
you're taking away their liberty. So we take a chance on people. We wait until they're old enough to understand why or why not they want to follow the Lord and be baptized. We don't take that from them and force that upon them before they are of accountability. And then the last and twelfth thing there is the independence. The independence of the church. And I'm using it in the sense of the separation of church and state. If you go to England, if you were to live in England, you would pay your taxes. Part of your taxes would be used to support the Church of England, the Anglican Church. You'll never find that in a Baptist church. Baptists, among all the people of the earth, have never been under the leadership of any government or any state. It's just antithetical to what we are. We're fiercely, fiercely independent. And we don't want the government to help us. We don't want the government to hurt us. We want the government to leave us alone and let us serve our Lord. And so there you have those 12 things distinguish New Testament Baptist churches. Now, turn with me to another reference. Let me show you what that needs to mean to you today as a member of our church. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians 2 and 15. Therefore, brethren, stand fast. That means take a fixed position like a, like a guard would take. Stand fast. Hold tightly the traditions. Wait a minute. We live in an untraditional world. Churches even put on their sign now, the contemporary service and traditional service. Hold fast the traditions. Those things that have been passed down through the ages that are meaningful and important, don't give them up. Stand for them. Take a fixed position. Don't compromise those things. Don't deviate on those things. Stand fast. Hold on to those traditions. Go back to that rock from which you were hewn. Go back to that pit from which you were digged and stand for those things because those things are worth standing for. Let me tell you about the future religion now because I'm very, very concerned at seeing the trends in America today. If you are a knowledgeable Bible Christian, you know where religion is headed in our world today. And to know that, you must know the book of Revelation, chapter 17. Would you turn with me there? And I'm going to show you where religion, now I'm not right now talking about Baptists, but I think that someday it will include Baptists, looking at the trends. Here's where we're going. Here's where religion, here's the future of religion in the world and keeping in mind that we're to stand fast and hold on to the traditions. In Revelation chapter 17, John is taken out by the angels and there came one of the seven angels who had the seven vials. He talked with me and he said, come here, I want to show you the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. What does that mean? Well, you know what a whore is. That's a prostitute. That's a woman who sells her body. She sells her principles. She sells out her character, her morality. 
And so we see a whore, a great, a great prostitute. She sits upon many waters. What does that mean? Go to verse 15. The waters which you saw where the whore sitteth are people and multitudes and nations and tongues. They're the populations and multitudes and nations, political entities, and the tongues, the language groups of the whole world. That means the whole world. It's, it's, it's a composite of the entire world. The whore sits upon the whole universal. This, this whore figure is a universal figure. The whole world understands and knows about her. So what is that saying to us? That says that someday when we get to this point in the midpoint of the tribulation period, midpoint of the tribulation period, that could be three and a half years from right now, by the way, midpoint of the tribulation period, there will be an end-time global religion that will represent all the peoples of the earth. It's not going to be just one Christian denomination. It's going to be Hindu and Muslim and Zoroaster and Spiritist and New Age and Christian liberal, and it's going to be a composite. All the religions of the world are going to come together in a unity, and it's called a whore. Why is it called a whore? Verse 2, because she's committed fornication with the kings of the earth, the governments, the political leaders. And this whore religion is going to be in bed with the political systems of the earth. Verse 3, she's riding a beast. Oh, we've met that beast before recently. If you were here on Sunday nights, I preached on Daniel 7. I preached also on Revelation. I preached to the kids recently here. Go back a few pages. Revelation chapter 13, verse 1. We'll find out who that beast is. I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rise up out of the sea, the sea representing all the nations of the world. And it has seven heads and ten horns. Ah, same, same beast. Same beast shows up again here. And this beast represents the end-time global government, political system, and economic system. We know from other places in the book of Revelation that if we don't take the mark of that beast in our head or our hand, that we will not be able to buy or sell. And we also know that that beast will bring together all the nations into this global political power, the fourth kingdom of Daniel chapter 2, the fourth beast of Daniel chapter 7, the great global power greater than any that has ever before existed in time. And this whore is riding the beast. She is riding on its power. She's sitting there in her scarlet, expensive clothing. What's her name? Verse 5. She's called Mystery Babylon. Babylon is the source of all of the occultic influences that we have known through the Bible. It all began in Babylon. It represents rebellion against God. It represents idolatry. 
Babylon represents humanism and man's pride, exalting itself against God. God, who do you think you are to tell us what to do? Verse 6, she's drunk with the blood of the saints, this whore. Meaning this world religious system is going to persecute Christians. Drunk on their blood, she's persecuted the true Christians. Verse 9, her headquarters is the city of seven hills, which is Rome. I'm not trying to connect that necessarily to the Roman Catholic Church, which no doubt will be a part of this, but it won't, that's, it's not saying that. But that will be the headquarters. In verse 16 and 17, let's read that. Revelation 17, 16. Here's what happens to this whore. The ten horns which you saw on the beast as ten kings that will come up under the beast, his associates, these will hate the whore, and they will make her desolate and naked. They'll strip her of everything that she has. They'll take her wealth, and they will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will in the hearts of these kings, and to agree, and to give their kingdoms unto the beast. And when these ten kings ruling under the beast give all their power to the beast, there will be one government, one religion, one economic system, globalism. Bill Gates' dream will have come to fruition, a one-world system. But it's controlled by a beast who is controlled by Satan himself, Revelation chapter 13. And so all religion will come together and it will be in bed with the political economic systems and then they will turn on it. We don't need religion anymore and they will destroy her. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 11 says that in those times, God will send a strong delusion upon those who resist his truth. When people reject the truth of God over and over and over and over, there comes a time when they are suffering from delusion. Do you see any signs today of delusion? A man can have a baby. I can become a woman. Does that sound like delusion? There's a lot of delusion in the world today. You can spend and spend and spend and spend. You don't ever have to worry about paying it back. Delusion. It's going to come upon the whole world. Well, you say, boy, that's frightening. It's not if you're saved. <laughs> I'm out of here. i got a front row seat in glory on that one, but Amen? If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, there's nothing there to frighten you. And if you don't know him, then you should be afraid. Because he could come in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and he'll catch up his bride. And together we'll be his great assembled church on the hills of heaven. 
and we will be with our Lord and our Savior and our Master forever and ever and ever. That's the future of religion. Notice that the future of world religion is a lot different than the future for God's people here. Not the same thing at all. What's in a name? What's in the name Baptist? Well, I've given you 12 distinguishing marks. It's a name worthy to hold on to. It is a name. It's one of those traditions that we need to stand for and understand because it represents so much of what the New Testament teaches. And above all, Baptists have stood for the gospel. The simple gospel as Paul has described it in 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ died for us. Oh, what love that Christ died for us. I can't imagine that degree of love. Christ, the Son of God, died for me. He died for you. He was buried for three days. And by the divine power of the Holy Spirit and God, he came out of that tomb, resurrected. He ascended to heaven. He waits there, preparing a place for God's people, he says. And then he's coming again. That's our faith. That's the Baptist faith. That is the tradition worth holding. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.